You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. This is what Jesus said. And it is recorded for us in John, the eighth chapter. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Knowing the truth, both the reality itself and the person who embodies it, is freeing. Amen? It is liberty. It is freedom to know the truth. When people embrace the truth, when they accept Jesus Christ who is the truth, there is freedom that comes rushing into our lives. Amen? The converse is true as well. When people embrace deceit and lies, it has the opposite effect. It, it places you in bondage to, to embrace a deceit and maybe people embrace deceit and they don't even know that they're embracing deceit. But nonetheless, they embrace it. It has an enslaving effect. So the message of Christ is truth and freeing. It's freeing and it gives great liberty to the captive, the one who would receive it. And so, if the message of Christ is freeing, then the message of the church should be freeing as well. It should be liberating. It should be the message of Christ being preached in and through the church of Jesus Christ. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul told young Timothy when he told them in his letter that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. The problem that has arisen down through the millennia is that there have always been those who come and preach a deceiving word. People came into the early church and they preached a message. It was a message, a, a, a twisted gospel, really, a contorted gospel. They changed the gospel. They changed the message. And they did it for several reasons. There were those that came into the church and they preached a twisted gospel to enrich their own lives. There were those that came into the, into the church, the churches, and they preached a twisted gospel to, to control the people. And they did this for hundreds of years. This has happened down through the history of the church and before the church was established. You had really false prophets, false teachers, people doing things, bringing a twisted message to enrich themselves and to control the masses in that sense. Really, this has been going on for thousands and thousands of years, way before the church was established, even after, the, after Christ's resurrection. False prophets and soothsayers for hire have been twisting and inventing words of God since the beginning of time. And this was a major problem in the early church, and it still is today. Let me say that again. It was a problem in the early church, and it's still a problem today. The truth, the message of Christ, the gospel is, is simply applied, and it produces freedom in the life of the person who embraces it, who embraces the truth of Jesus Christ. When God's word is twisted, it becomes more complicated, it becomes burdensome, and ultimately enslaves the hearer. So warnings have gone out from Jesus to Paul to Peter to Jude 
and many others, warnings throughout the scriptures, warning of those that would come, false teachers, bringing a false gospel. And so tonight, it brings us to our text. Here in the second epistle of Peter, Paul, uh, Peter is giving us one of those warnings. He's giving us that warning of false teachers and false teaching. Peter gives us here, as 21st century Christians, a great warning against false teaching and false teachers. And so tonight, we're going to look at that warning. You say, really, do we need to do this? Now more than ever, now more than ever, we need to take a look at the warnings that are present in Scripture. And there's no better night than tonight to do it. Amen? Got two points tonight if you're taking notes. The first one is this. Be aware of false teaching. As 21st century Christians, we need to be aware of false teaching. Let's take a look at this beginning in 2 Peter chapter 2. Pick it up, verse 1. It says this. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. We as Christians in the 21st century, we need to be aware of false teaching. There has always been false teaching since Satan twisted God's word in the Garden of Eden. Since that time, there's always been false teaching. And there's false teaching today. We need to be aware of it. Peter tells us here in 2 Peter 2, verse 1, he tells us here that there were false prophets among the people and there's false teachers among you. There have always been false prophets among the people and there's false teachers among even you. And if Peter were here today, he would say the same to the churches across the world, that there's false teachers even among the church today. This is what makes it hard for people. You say the false teachers are among you? They're among the church? This warning of Peter's is parallel. It's a parallel warning to that of Jude's in his short epistle. Jude wrote a very short epistle. It's actually 24 verses. And in Jude's short epistle, Jude gives a very similar warning to the warning that we're looking here at tonight in 2 Peter chapter 2. In verse 4 of Jude, Jude said this, and you'll see it up on the screen. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness. Leave the verse up there on the screen because I want to take a look at it here. It says, for certain men have crept in unnoticed, Peter says here that false prophets have been among the people and false teachers are among you. Jude says men have crept in unnoticed. The word here in Jude 4 for unnoticed, it's a word that literally means to come in by secret, literally by stealth. And how is it 
that false teachers have come into the church or come into the churches of Jesus Christ unnoticed because they've come in as the shepherds. They've come in as people that would portray themselves as the pastors, as the teachers, as the people to, to be heard, to be looked up to. And that's why Jude is giving the warning. He says, look, men have kept, crept in unnoticed. They've come in by stealth. And they've twisted, they've turned the grace of our Lord God into something else. And so there, there they are, unnoticed for what they really are, false teachers. False teachers. And that is why we need to be aware of false teachers and false teaching. That is why we need to be extra on guard. That's why we need to be aware of this phenomenon that is nothing new, but we need to be aware of it and we need to have sharp radar up, sharp antenna up for when we see things. Especially in this day and age of, of the ability of media and social media to be going to and fro like crazy and every one of us is reading all kinds of stuff from all kinds of different sources. And we need to be aware of false teaching. Now a false teacher isn't someone who misspeaks or makes a mistake on an occasion or whatever. A false teacher is someone who twists God's word to say something that it doesn't say and that it doesn't mean. They literally invent their own meaning to God's word. And this is false teaching. And people who do this are false teachers. And Peter says virtually the same thing that Jude says. These false teachers will secretly bring in destructive doctrines. Doctrine is a word, it just simply means teaching. The doctrines that are brought in are destructive doctrines. They're just, it's destructive teaching. It may sound great. It may tickle the ears. It may just really think, well, wow, wow, that's great. That's wonderful. But it's a destructive doctrine. It's a destructive teaching. And we need to be aware of it. And Peter is warning about it. Jude is warning about it. Paul warned the Ephesian elders that wolves would come in and, 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 and wreak havoc in the church. And, and that's why we need to be aware of this situation. The false teaching is destructive because it ultimately brings people into bondage. It is not liberating teaching. It's something that masquerades as liberating teaching. Oh, well, if you, you buy into this and if you do this, it's, it's liberating, it's freeing. It's ultimately something that enslaves people and brings people into bondage. And it's a serious thing. It's a serious thing. That's why there's a warning to people in terms of wanting to be pastors and, and teachers and preachers. And, and, and it, James talks about this, about the, the, the accountability that every pastor, every teacher is going to have before the Lord because he's the great, te he's the great shepherd and pastors are simply the under-shepherds. And we have a responsibility to proclaim the word of truth and to, and to, and to, to bring it forth in, in the truth that it is and not color it for our own desires and twist it for our own ways. And, and, and this is an important, important message for today. 
when these false teachers bring into the church their false teaching, Peter says, look, look down there, he says, many will follow the false teaching. Not only are the false teachers among you, but many will follow it. Because they will follow the teaching that they hear. They hear the teaching. They say, oh, look at that guy. That guy's my pastor. That guy's my, my whatever. I, I, and many follow it. Many follow destructive doctrines, false teaching. And we need to know that it's out there. And that it's widespread. And we need to be aware of it. Amen? How do you spot a counterfeit? How do you spot a counterfeit? We got a picture of a bill here. Now, the primary way that the FBI trains its agents to spot counterfeit currency is to train them and teach them to become so familiar with real currency that they can pick out the counterfeit with ease. So familiar with real currency that when they see something that's fake, antennas go up, bells ring, alarms go off, radars go just in their, in their being. Why? This ain't right. This is not correct. This is not a real $100 bill. Now, in recent years, you know, counterfeiting is a major thing, major problem, especially with the advent of color printers. <laughs> you got color printers and people printing dollar, you know, printing dollar bills and, you know, coming up with all kinds of stuff. So when the color printers came out, then they had to go through like, you know, and make all kinds of other provisions. For, you know, because you had guys literally going out and getting the exact paper and, the, you know, making the, you know, and passing them off at the 7-Eleven. And, and, you know, getting away with this counterfeiting. And so they've had to add these anti-counterfeiting measures. And you've seen this. If you've presented a $100 bill at the store, they have, I don't know, some type of a pen or something that they, that they're able to, to see very quickly if it's, if it's a real bill. If it's a real bill, they'll, they'll know right away that it's a real bill. And the gospel has anti-counterfeiting measures. The true doctrines of the gospel are the anti-counterfeiting measures. Amen? The false preachers of yesterday and today take the message of God's word and they twist it and they turn it to say something that it doesn't. And it usually involves false teaching on money and God's blessing and or liberties and sensual pursuits. There are others, but generally nine times out of ten it's going to fall into those categories right there. False teaching about money and false teaching about liberties in sensual pursuits. One of the great, now, and, and, and you know, to go through like false teaching and to, to pick them all out would, is just, you know, would be, you know, would be like a major seminar, right? And, 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 um, but I want to I take a look at one in particular because it just keeps rearing its ugly head, you know. 
It's, it, it, won't, it won't go away. One of the greatest false teachings of the last few decades that still manifests in new but familiar forms today is what is called the word of faith doctrine or the word of faith teaching. Made popular in the late 20th century by teachers like Kenneth Hagin, the, the, you have the doctrine of the word of faith, word of faith teaching. The word of faith teaching is a false and destructive teaching. It's, the word of faith is a major doctrinal error and it needs to be called out and it is widespread today and it pops up in various forms. There are different levels of it. Some of the word of faith teaching has spread into what were once solid charismatic streams in the church. You know it by different names as it is Come, name it, claim it, word of faith, etc. The fundamental error comes from an obvious misinterpretation of a particular verse of Scripture. Hebrews 11, verse 3. Hebrews 11, verse 3, it says this, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of the things which are visible. The fundamental error in interpretation is that the word of faith teachers teach that, okay, the Bible says, here it says that the, word, that the worlds were framed by the word of God. We're told elsewhere in scripture who created the world. In the Gospel of John, we're told who created the world. In the Gospel of John, in the, in the third verse, the first chapter. Amen? The word, the word, who is Christ, created everything that exists, right? And so Jesus is the creator of the world. And so this verse says, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. The fundamental error in interpretation by the word of faith teachers is that they say that God created the world by faith. And so if God could create the world by faith, that faith is now this power, this thing that can be tapped into so that you can create your world, so that you can form your world by the words that you have by faith, saying what it is and creating your world. But you know, I, you know we look at that tonight and we look at it and we say, it's, it's, I think it, I look at it, it's pretty easy to understand. By faith, we understand. We understand by faith that God created the world through his word. Amen. He spoke and he created the world. God did not utilize a force called faith to create the world, to bring the world into existence. So that there's not a dynamic outside of the power and person of God for you to, to somehow tap into a, a dimension of faith that somehow gives you the power and ability to, to, to create things. No. Now, we are creative people. We, we have been given uh, creativity. We've been given awesome uh, talents and abilities to do those things. But what happens in this particular era of doctrine is this actually gets twisted and goes in a thousand different directions in the church. And it has spread over the decades like wildfire uh, because it is, it is an, it's a, it's a tantalizing doctrine. 
It's a tempting doctrine to somehow believe that I can tap into this power of faith that even God has to honor somehow this thing that I've tapped into somehow. No, God honors our faith and belief in his word. Amen? <laughs> and that's the, that's the true message of the gospel. They actually teach that this verse says that Jesus created the world by faith and that it is a model of how we can create our world around us by the word of faith. Now, what world would you create for yourself by faith? Well, here's what they tell you. Here's the type of world that they tell you that you can create for yourself. A world of health, a world of wealth, a world of all this is out there for you to take hold of. Amen? Because God has that for you. God wants that for you. And this is how it's sold. Let me tell you that these are the lies of Satan from the Garden of Eden. These are the very lies from Satan from the Garden of Eden. Satan told Eve that the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would make her like God. So she listened to his lies and saw that the fruit was good for food, health. Able to make one wise, knowledge, and pleasing to the eye. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. These same things from the temptations from the garden are the same three temptations that Satan tempted Jesus with in the desert. And they're the same things. This is his MO, basically. This is the devil's MO. This is his strategy. And it's a strategy that works because it appeals to the carnal nature of mankind. It appeals to the carnality. And so what ministries have done, and some to greater degrees than others, but some have taken those things that are really the temptations of the enemy and turned them into godly desires. Now, if I took the things that were the temptations of the enemy and I turned them into godly desires and presented to you and said, these are godly desires, what person on earth would not embrace those things? Oh, yeah, that's exactly what I want. That's what I want. And this is one of the reasons why it's so successful. It's a successful doctrine because it appeals to the carnal nature. It appeals to that flesh side of our lives. Now a true minister of the gospel comes along and says, here's the gospel. Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. For your sins. If you accept his sacrifice and make him Lord of your life, he's going to save you. And you next have to take up your cross and follow him as well. 
It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be a primrose path. There will be hardship, discipline, even suffering. But through it, God is going to refine you. As a refiner of silver, he will sit. As a refiner of silver, he will purify you in the process. And you're going to walk into true holiness. And you will have true joy. And you will have true happiness in your life. And you will have true, the, the, the reality of the Spirit of God working in your life in, in, in truth. This is the gospel. This is what's happening. This is the contrast. And we have to see it for what it is. Now, I understand this, this, may, be, you know, this may be tough for some people to, to swallow. But it's, a, it's an ingenious move. It's an ingenious move. And here, since the beginning of time, God has been warning against this. God has been warning against this from the, the, from the, the beginning of time. The false prophets in the Old Testament, the false teachers in the New Testament. And how many warnings do we have from the apostles and Jesus himself? And Jesus himself said, you want to know? They came to him and said, Jesus, tell us about the end. Tell us the signs of your coming. Let me tell you what to do about the time of the end. Make sure that you're not deceived. Amen? Make sure that you're... That was, his, that was the first thing out of his mouth. He didn't go into timelines and dates and weeks of years and all kinds of... He said, make sure you're not deceived because there's coming a great delusion. There's coming a great deception that is so great that people will not even realize that they're under a great delusion and deception. Even, and Jesus goes so far to say, even if the elect... It's a great deception. Now, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a powerful thing. I mean, it's got to be the most powerful thing in the, in the world. It can bring the dead to life, the sinner to salvation. It's a great thing. And we need to be committed to it. We need to know it. And we need to be freed by it. And also not be led astray by false doctrines and false teachings. There's a principle, I think, and I, forget, I don't know who said this. But if you can preach what you're preaching on any street in the world, from Fifth Avenue to the garbage dumps in Mexico City and the garbage dumps in Africa and wherever they are, if you can preach it on every street, that's what it needs to be. And, 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 and this is important. It's important. It's so important that Jude, when he sat down to write his epistle... He sat down to write an epistle and he had a particular idea about what he was going to write about and he was moved by the Holy Spirit to change course, to change topic and to write his letter. He changed the content of his letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to urgently exhort believers to contend for the gospel. This is how Jude opens his epistle in Jude chapter 3. You'll see it up on the screen 
He says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common uh, salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. The, 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 the gospel, the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. The gospel of Jesus Christ. He goes on to, he says there, right to you, exhorting you to, to contend earnestly for. Now, I happened to do an intensive study <laughs> in this particular epistle. I spent, believe it or not, 15 weeks in this <laughs> short little epistle. So I, I'm fairly familiar with it. Um, and the word contend there is, is literally, it's like a, it's like a wrestling term. It's a, it's a term that literally means to, to contend for it in such a way as that, man, well, I'm going to contend for this. What? For the gospel, for the faith that was once delivered, once and for all delivered, it's so important. We've received the gospel. And when we hear the gospel, the gospel message that says a sinner can come to Christ and be saved, uh, that you could take up your cross and follow Christ. Yes, God has, God has good things for you. God does have an abundant life for you. It's not to say, it's, it's, this message in no way is a condemnation against riches, against success, against hard work, against perhaps building a business, being creative, coming up, building your own business, creating a widget or a gadget or whatever and having it be the best-selling thing on Fifth Avenue. It's, it's, it, this message is not to say anything about that. It's to say something about taking and twisting the gospel of Jesus Christ and making it out to be something that it's not. And, and, and for that, we need to be exhorted to contend for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us not be led astray by a false gospel. Now, moving very quickly. Secondly tonight, be advised that the false teachers doom Pick it up, verse 4. Peter says this, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to the destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was suppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority, and they are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are great in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Wow. Be advised of the false teacher's doom. Here Peter tells us that false teachers are headed towards certain destruction. Basically, what we just read, you can sum it up in that statement that false teachers are for sure 
unless they, unless they repent and come to Christ, they're, they're headed for certain destruction. And Peter uses analogies of God's past judgment to get the point across that certain judgment is coming. It may not seem that it is coming. It may not seem that it is certain. But Peter says it is certain it is coming. It really looks like four analogies. As you read down through the passage that we just read, it seems like four analogies, but I believe really it's two analogies, and they communicate the same message. The first analogy is about the angels that sinned, and then the flood of destruction that came, and, uh, and, and of course Noah, the, the flood, Noah's flood, and how Noah and his family was, was saved through it. Peter reminds his readers and us about the angels that sinned before the flood. What angels that sinned? Well, you could make a case for various groups of angels that sinned. I believe after doing extensive study in Jude and Peter and other uh, areas that what is being talked about here is the angels that sinned that is referenced in Genesis chapter 6. During the time of Jared, angels sinned. They came down, angels, sons of God, Beneha Elohim. They are called in the Hebrew. Angels is a generic term. Angels isn't really a term. It's a job description. And I think that's where people get off base because they think angels. And, and when you say angels, you want to think of the cute little, you know, Victorian shop with the little babies with the cute the chubby cheeks. And, the, you know, oh, look at the baby, you know, cute little angels. No, 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 no. Angels are powerful beings. Supernatural beings that are mighty and powerful. We, Peter even alludes to that later in the text. The might and the power of the angels, the, the sons of God, the Beneha Elohim. And the, the book of Genesis tells us about this in Genesis chapter 6, that the Beneha Elohim, the sons of God, came unto the daughters of men. And they procreated and they produced an offspring in the earth called the Nephilim. The Nephilim were the giants that we read about in the Bible in the Old Testament. And this was a grievous thing. Now, we find this account in Genesis chapter 6, and we see a thorough account of it in the book of Enoch. You say, what, the book of Enoch? What's that? The book of Enoch, which is not in our canonical scriptures, but is biblically endorsed and quoted verbatim by the by. Jude, in his epistle, where he's addressing this very subject. Jude recounts the same sin of the angels in his letter. Jude, verse 6, you'll see it on the screen. It says this, And the angels, who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Goes on in that passage to talk about how they went after strange flesh and comparing the sin of the men of Sodom going after strange flesh to the, the sin of the angels that did not keep their proper abode. Now what has God done about these angels? He has reserved them in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day. This is what Jude tells us tells us. Peter tells us the same thing. For if God did not spare the angels, verse 4, who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. 
So this, so Jude and Peter are just kind of like a double-barrel shotgun here, saying the same thing. And what Peter is saying here is the translators translate this word hell, and it is not the word hell, it is not Hades, it is the word Tartarus, and it actually is a place of imprisonment, an actual place of imprisonment that God has imprisoned the angels who sinned that did not keep their proper domain. And they are imprisoned, they are in chains. You say, chains, really? Yeah, well, there's another chain, there's another angel in the book of Revelation that's going to come down and he's going to chain up the dragon. Now, I don't know what kind of chains they are, but I know God has ways of chaining. God could arrest you and chain you up in all kinds of different ways, amen? And he has a way of doing it when it comes to these beings that are ultimately under his control, amen? And so, this is Tartarus. In the book of Enoch, in 1 Enoch 6-10, through 10, the beings, the Beneha Elohim, are clearly identified as angels rebelling against God, and the results of their interactions with the women and their judgment are described in detail. Then in 1 Enoch 15 and 16 and 21, their prison and final judgment are described. Now, this is, now Jude quotes directly from the book of Enoch, talking about the great day. This is all leading up to the great day of the Lord, where final judgment will be given, restitution of all things. Amen? Praise the Lord. So what does God do? You have the angels that brought uh, an amount of evil into the world through this and an offspring that populated the world and so that you have evil just being rampant throughout the world. So what did God do? God brought a flood upon the earth. Now, was, why did God bring the flood? Was it man's sin or was it the sins of the angels or was it both? I think it was both. But I think a great portion of it had to do with this, the sins of the angels and God effectively dealing with the offspring, these Nephilim, that would be a thorn in the flesh to the people of God all the way down through their history. You had these Nephilim that were giants and had... Six fingers and six toes. Yes, read your Bibles, folks. Read your Bibles. It's a wild book full of truth about all kinds of interesting stuff. And there was a man named David who went up against one of these giants and he killed him and he cut off his head and he took it to a he took it took that head to Jerusalem. And he buried it in a hill. And on that hill, Gaul. Gotha, head of the skull, is where Jesus won the victory for you and me. Amen? So if you understand what the Bible is talking about, a battle of seeds that has been taking place since the fall of man from the garden, you begin to understand the bigger picture. And this either like 
freaks people out or excites you that says, hey, you know what? There's a God that's in control and there is stuff going down and I serve the God of, of, of glory who's going to absolutely be the one that brings final restitution to this whole thing and I'm on the winning side, amen? amen. And, and it gets me excited. Now, what did God do? He, he found a man who was perfect. The Bible says untainted in, in his genetics. He was a righteous man, but also he was untainted in his genetics. And God, through Noah, built the ark, and he saved eight people. No one got on the ark, except for Noah and his wife and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives. But Genesis says that they're also Nephilim after they were in the world at that time, Genesis 6. And after that, and that's why you see giants that have repopulated the land by the time that Joshua was about to, well, when Moses sends in the spies in Numbers 13, and the spies come back, and what do they say? There's giants in the land, and we're like grasshoppers to them and to us. We're like, we look at ourselves against them, and we look like grasshoppers. You read it, Numbers chapter 13. So what did God do? He brought a deluge. He brought a flood. And he brought destruction on all those that wouldn't heed, heed his word. And he started over with a family. He saved a family. And so what the picture is, he knows how he, God will bring destruction. Ultimately, there is a, there is a, a, a forbearance. There is a patience. But then there's, there's the destruction that comes. And there is God saving the godly, the righteous, out of that situation. Now, Moving forward very quickly and moving toward our conclusion tonight, Peter goes on to the next analogy, which is the analogy of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot. And so you have Sodom and Gomorrah and you read about this. Now, if I say the word, if I say Sodom and Gomorrah, that'd be a, that would be interesting to do a man on the street video today and go out with Cameron, whatever, and say, Sodom and Gomorrah, what do you know about it? It'd be very interesting. But if you want to know about it, perhaps you don't know, haven't read up on that, haven't heard a teaching on Sodom and Gomorrah in a while, well, tonight, here we are. Sodom and Gomorrah. Read Genesis chapter 19 and read about the sins of Sodom and read how the sin was so grievous in Sodom that God sent two angels, two righteous angels, to go to Lot, to his family, to, to save Lot's family out of, out of Sodom because he was bringing destruction on it. And just to give you just a brief little picture of it, when these angels came into the town square in uh, Sodom, the men of the city lusted after the angels and wanted to sleep with the angels. And they, they bull rushed uh, Lot's house and Lot's door and, and it was a whole scene. This is what happened. And God used those angels to lead Lot and his family, really his two daughters. Of course, his wife didn't make it. You go to Sodom now, the whole thing is assault. It's, just, it's, 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 it's all salt. 
You, what, you do an interesting study in, in Genesis and you read, why did Lot choose the land towards Sodom? Read it in Genesis. When, when, when Abraham and Lot came to that point where their people were arguing and quarreling over, and they said, okay, finally, we're going to have to split ways. We're going to have to go. And Abraham gave Lot and said, well, you choose. Now, Lot should have said, no, uncle, good uncle, you choose. But Abraham said, no, Lot, you choose which land you want. And, and Lot's eyes were drawn down towards Sodom. It says he pitched his tent towards Sodom that was as the garden. I find that very interesting in light of what the judgment that God brought against Sodom, that it is literally a desolate desert place at this point. It's where the Dead Sea is. It's literally on the, it's at the Dead Sea. And God brought destruction to Sodom. In fact, Peter says he brought them to ashes. I think that's pretty vivid. I read that and I was like, wow, ashes. He brought them to ashes. So what's the message of the two analogies? The two analogies are this. God is a just God and he's going to bring justice and judgment to the ungodly but he also knows how to save the righteous out of that situation. And he did it on both occasions. And you see, that's, that's, the, that's the analogy, that's the message that Peter is making. Two historical analogies and are the same. So Peter sums up his use of the analogies in verse 9. You'll see it up on the screen. 2 Peter 2, verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. The ungodly, the rebellious, the disloyal will be reserved for destruction. The opposite is true for the righteous. The righteous are, are delivered. The unrighteous are slanderers with their tongues. He goes on to the, this final two verses here. He talks about how the unrighteous, the, the ungodly, they're slanderous with their tongues. They, they speak evil against uh, authorities. He contrasts that with the good angels who will not bring a reviling accusation. He contrasts that with the devil who is the accuser and brings accusation against the, the believer and the Son of God. But here the good angels will not bring an accusation against them. But the ungodly are slanderous with their tongues. Righteous angels do not speak a reviling word. And the gospel message is this. The ungodly, the unrighteous will be reserved for destruction. The godly, those who receive the righteousness of Christ, the, the godly. How do you become godly? You become godly by being made alive by Christ, by accepting the free gift of life from Christ. The offer of salvation, the offer of life. You, you come and you receive the gift of God. You receive the righteousness of Christ. You receive the garments, the white linen garments of, of, of the righteousness of Christ as a free gift. And those who receive, those who are the godly, will be delivered. They will be saved. And the question is, are you one of the righteous? God has provided. God has provided for each and every person. And choose you this day whom you will serve. 
Whether the gods that were served on the other side of the river. But, shoot, but, but Joshua says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Choose life and you will live. Choose death and you will die. This is the choice that goes all the way back to the initial choice. The choice is still the same that each and every person has. Well, well, it's a different situation. It's a different... No, we all have the same identical choice that Adam and Eve had. There was a tree of life and there was a tree that if you eat the, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. That is the choice that goes out and that we all have. Do not miss the righteous, the gift of God, the righteousness of Christ. And Christian, let us be very careful about false teaching and not being easily led astray and just kind of whisked away by this kind of stuff. But rock solid in the teaching of the book of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes.